surrounded by people. In the midst of our weakness and our loss and our mourning, our passage today points us to the fullness that only Jesus brings. So please pray with me uh, for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love and mercy, you reveal yourself to us through your Word. We offer up this time to you, trusting you to apply your word to our hearts by your spirit, that we may gain much more than a few insights or greater understanding of a story, but that we may know and have life in your Son, the resurrected and living Christ who dwells in us 
by the Spirit. We come to you in his name. Amen. We'll be reading from the Gospel of John chapter 2, so uh, please turn there in your Bibles or you can follow along in your order of worship. One brief note of explanation as you turn uh, so that no one gets tripped up as we read our passage. We'll see uh, in this story that Jesus calls his mother uh, woman, uh, which of course is not how a son would, am I okay here? Uh, which, of course, is not how a son would normally uh, refer to his mother and, and which would be quite rude in our culture. And while it's not a warm term of affection in first century Israel, it's also not one of disrespect. Uh, some translators suggest that, that ma'am uh, is the closest that we can come to it, but on the lips of someone who would not normally use the term. We'll see a little later why Jesus may have chosen this term. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first, or this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have a, a great appreciation for comedian Jim Gaffigan's comments on weddings. Uh, unlike Jim Gaffigan, I love a good wedding. I love officiating weddings, witnessing up close a bride and groom covenant their lives together as one in Christ. I love the celebration that ensues. I love watching people who would never, considering, never consider dancing in any other place or circumstance dance with all their might out of the joy of the wedding. It's at least about the only place that I consider it. I love seeing that middle-aged couple that shows up at every wedding and no, one, and no one knew they could dance, but they're so good they look like they choreographed the entire two hours. You, you know who you are. <clears throat> Finally, I love seeing the 20 or 30-something who always breaks out the worm at some point. Uh, I actually just witnessed this athletic display a month ago at a wedding, of course. <clears throat> Not quite four years ago, uh, our oldest daughter was married to another lifelong Trinity member by the name of Colmus, uh, in case you happen to know his amazing parents, John and Jackie Colmus. And the wedding was just perfect. I should say almost everything was perfect. Most importantly, we were excited about the marriage. Uh, and fittingly, the ceremony was absolutely beautiful. It was a worship service. The local vineyard uh, on a crisp but comfortable winter day was stunning inside and out. Annalise and David looked magazine ready. Uh, their family and, and closest friends were there. 
Jackie's flowers were amazing. Nancy's wedding cake was amazing. We didn't run out of wine. But Houston, we did have a problem. You see, the, the ceremony ended, and, and everyone's mingling and drinking wine, enjoying hors d'oeuvres, while the main room was being cleared for toasts and dessert and dancing. And it, it had dawned, my, dawned on me that I could barely hear the background music. And so I sneak away just to go ask if they could turn it up just, just a bit, and I'm told that this is as loud as it gets. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. No one could dance to this. And it's no big deal while everyone's enjoying appetizers and, and mingling, but no one was going to be dancing with all their might uh, at this volume, not to mention the music for the first dance is barely being audible. You see, the vineyard uh, had told me that, that we could have our DJ bring their own sound system, but the coordinator uh, actually encouraged us to use their speaker system. And since they do zillions of weddings, like every weekend, it never occurred to me that they didn't know their own sound system. Turns out I had been talking with a new employee. Needless to say, the next 20 to 30 minutes were stressful. And it's not that every wedding has to have dancing, but if you plan to dance, you need sound. If your daughter and son-in-law plan to dance, you need sound. And we had very little of it. And so I got just a little taste that day of what they might have been feeling at this wedding in Cana. Like the wedding that Jesus attends, it was all behind the scenes. Few, if any, of the guests in Cana know what's going on. And we actually can't be sure exactly who knew about the problem outside of the servants and Jesus and his mother, who likely was helping with the wedding as a relative or close friend. The groom would have been responsible in Jewish culture for providing for the wedding. It was a mark of his ability to provide for his bride, and it was the culmination of many months of preparing a home for her. And so it's possible that he knew, maybe his parents knew, uh, hopefully they didn't tell the bride, uh, but we can imagine just how stressful this would have been if they knew. But we read a little later in the story, that even the master of the feast appears to have had no knowledge of the problem when he says to the groom in verse 10, you've kept the good wine until now. If the master of the ceremonies didn't know that the wine had run out, it's very possible that the groom did not know either. Regardless of the groom's knowledge of what was happening, the embarrassment and shame would have fallen on him if the wine had run out. And as, as important as weddings are in our culture, and particularly to our faith, in, the culture, in this culture, without a constant stream of, of concerts and sporting events and school plays and movies, weddings were a huge social occasion. The celebrations often lasted several days, and with Cana being a very small village, just a couple hours' walk from Jesus' also small hometown of Nazareth, there would have been nowhere for the groom to escape where he was not known. In the words of Tim McGraw, everybody knows everybody. When we add to this that it was a shame culture in which one's honor and respect was paramount, running out of wine would have been a mark of shame for the groom and for his family that would have been difficult or impossible to erase. Theologian D.A. Carson says that there's even some evidence that the bride's family could have sued the groom's family over this failure. Whether or not that, that's true, it's difficult for us to overstate the stigma of running out of wine 
in an ancient Near Eastern culture. But what we see in this passage is that when the wine runs out, Jesus brings fullness. Our outline this morning is very simple. When the wine runs out, Jesus brings fullness. So first, what does it look like for the wine to run out in our lives? See, I believe we're justified in thinking more broadly than literally running out of wine for a few reasons. John tells us in verse 11 that this miracle is the first of Jesus' signs, of which there are seven recorded in his gospel, the last and greatest being the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. Signs inherently point to something much greater than themselves. Just as the overlook at Humpback Mountain is much more glorious than the sign that says 0.8 miles to the top. And so John is informing us that this wine is pointing to a much greater glory. Jesus, too, reveals the broader scope of what he's being asked to do in his response to his mother. Even though his use of the term woman in verse 4 was not rude, it, it does begin to indicate some distance from his mom. As if to say that while Jesus was an obedient and loving son, ultimately his mission was not subject to earthly ties or to his mother, but only to the will of his heavenly father. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Throughout this gospel, Jesus' hour refers to his death and probably to the corresponding glory of his resurrection. And Jesus is saying, whoa, slow down. That time has not yet come. Clearly, in Jesus' mind, this request is about much more than wine at this wedding. Mary perseveres in faith, and as Carson says in verse 4, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. But in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. She responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. And so there's this turning of the corner in her relationship with Jesus. And Jesus' ministry takes a new turn as well. This is about much more than wine. It's also important to understand that throughout the scriptures, wine carries much more meaning than simply literal wine. In the Old Testament, the prophet spoke of a day to come when God would show mercy to his people and pour out his blessing. And I want you to hear the imagery they use that is only fully realized in Christ and in the new creation to come. The prophet Amos, chapter 9, says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter of the one treading grapes. By the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. So Amos is speaking of a day when their work will be so fruitful that they will still be harvesting when it's time to sow again. The wine will be abundant. Prophet Isaiah, verse 20, or chapter 25, says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, blinding them. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth, the Lord has spoken. We see in these passages that when God blesses his people with wine, it is indicative of much more than good drink. 
It is indicative of the fullness of God's presence and blessing, the removal of disgrace, the end of frustration and tears, even the end of death itself. When we understand all that wine signifies, we can see that we experience the wine running out in our lives in all kinds of ways. We experience frustration and disappointment in our work instead of fruitfulness. We don't get the job or the internship we desire or the raise that we think we deserve. Time runs out on us to get the school or work assignment done. Or time runs out to take advantage of all the opportunities around us. Our bodies run out on us through injury or illness or disease. Relationships dry up or break up, leaving us feeling lonely and empty. We disappoint each other. We disappoint our own family members. We disappoint our spouses. We disappoint our church family members. We worry, too, that, that we ourselves will run out, that our best efforts will not be enough. This concern of, of, of not measuring up to the next person is always at epidemic level here in Charlottesville. And we saw this week, and as a number of us have personally experienced in recent months, we lose children, parents, siblings, friends, in all kinds of ways and in varying degrees, we experience the fullness of wine running out on us. And so what do we do? Where, where do you go for fullness when the wine runs out? If we're honest, Jesus is often the last person or place we go to. I just want to mention um, a couple of places, two places that we will often run to before Jesus, before we move on. The first is our idols. We make idols out of the very things that are letting us down, out of the very wine that is running out on us. This is actually the entire premise of C.S. Lewis's amazing little book, The Great Divorce, that the very idols that are making us miserable keep luring us back. Whether it's accomplishment or intellectual status or our own righteousness and sense of fairness or broken sexuality or the list goes on, Lewis is calling us to, to wake up and see how our idols are actually running out of wine. They're running out on us, and he calls us to see how God desires to free us from them. The other place that I mentioned that we run to is, is image management. We see in our passage that they were not immune from image management in the first century. This is why it was the wedding tradition to, to bring out the cheap stuff later, right? When the guests couldn't tell the difference between the $30 bottle and the $6 bottle of wine. It may just seem like common sense, right? But it's also totally image management, isn't it? Similarly, when we feel the wine running out on us, we often seek to appear strong. And our culture tells us to appear strong when in fact we are broken and we are weak. We double down on our efforts to appear confident that we have it all together, that all of the wine in our cellar is top-notch. But it doesn't work. 
Image management only wears us out and it does not bring the fullness for which we were made. Through this sign, Jesus calls us to see that only he brings fullness. Jesus brings fullness. Where do we see it in our passage? First, we see that where we have guilt before God, Jesus brings the fullness of forgiveness. Look at back at verse 6 with me. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And then Jesus tells the servants to fill them to the brim. You see, it's no accident that the jars that Jesus had them fill were, were water jars for purification. So know that these jars were were for washing and cleaning, not for drinking. The Jewish people normally would have used the water in these jars to wash their hands and pots and cups and bowls in order to stay ritually clean, an external or outward sign of holiness before God. But Jesus turns the ceremonial water of the old covenant, of the old order, where the same sacrifices and cleansings had to repeat it day after day, he turns, the wine, or he turns the water of the Old Covenant into the wine of the New Covenant, pointing ahead to the hour of his death when the wine of his blood would be poured out for us once for all, taking our death on himself in order to grant us the fullness of forgiveness. The only remedy for evil in this world, including the evil that lurks in every human heart, the pride and selfishness, the evil that lurks in our hearts, the only remedy is the wine of Christ's blood. Second, we see that where we feel shame, Jesus restores the fullness of dignity. Where we have let others down, where we have let ourselves down, where we have embarrassed ourselves, Jesus restores the fullness of dignity. As we saw earlier, the reputation of this young groom was about to be crushed. What will his in-laws think of him? What will his bride think of him? What will his family think of him? What will his friends think of him, the greater community? But what happens to the groom's image and reputation as a result of what Jesus does? In verse 10, we read that the master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. The groom's dignity is protected, it's restored, even elevated, not because of anything that he did, but because of what Jesus did. He gets all the credit for what Jesus did. And it's a sign pointing to an even greater restoration of dignity. See, the good news of Jesus is that when we know that we are perfectly loved by him and accepted by the God of the universe, we no longer need to worry about continual image management. We are freed to live without the fear of shame. We are free to get our eyes off of ourselves, and we are free to live the life of love for God and others that he created us to live. Jesus restores the fullness of our dignity. And finally, where we experience lack and loss as many of us felt deeply this week, Jesus brings abundance and resurrection. 
We see in this passage that while this groom in Cana failed to provide, that Jesus is the groom who does not fail to provide. We're reminded by this wedding in Cana that all of creation is moving toward a wedding feast in which Jesus is the groom and we, the church, is united to him. We are united to him as his bride. Where the dead in Christ are raised up with him and clothed in the splendor of his righteousness as a bride beautifully prepared for her husband. It's the feast described in the passage we read earlier in Isaiah. Better than any Thanksgiving table that will be set this week, it's where the finest of wines will be flowing, where shame and disgrace are removed, where tears are wiped away, and where the death that swallows up every human being will itself be swallowed up. Beginning with this wedding feast, all of the good earthly joys and hopes that were taken from the three young men who died this week will be restored a hundredfold for all who are united in Christ. Who are wedded to the one who came into this world to take the worst of evil and suffering and betrayal on himself and rose victorious over it. And this marriage with him will never end. We, uh, we did end up getting sound uh, at my daughter's wedding. It's, uh, it's not easy to track down a sound system on a Friday night in 30 minutes when you're 15 minutes outside of Charlottesville. Uh, but by the grace of a couple answered phone calls on a Friday night of all times and a willing servant, uh, we were able to secure a portable sound system from Trinity. <laughs> to put my best theological spin on this, with a strong doctrine of the church, we could say that Jesus provided sound through his church. <clears throat> Casey and Janae would probably want me to add that, that you're only allowed to call and ask for a sound system if you are in a bind in the middle of a wedding reception, and they may or may not answer. Uh, to be honest, the sound system wasn't amazing, uh, but it was loud enough and good enough for the party to go on without a hitch. But let's be clear that that is not what happened at Cana. Jesus does not provide passable wine. When the master of the feast tastes the wine that Jesus creates, he exclaims that against custom, you have saved the best until last. Jesus is calling us to look to him as the only one who can provide fullness when the wine runs out, as it did this week and as it will again and again this side of heaven. It's interesting to me that, that many of the people who enjoyed the wine that Jesus provided at this wedding, maybe even the groom, uh, that they were oblivious to what had occurred. But my prayer for myself, uh, for this church, and for all of us here is, is that we will be like Mary and the servants at the wedding who knew. We're specifically told in verse 9, but the servants knew. They knew what happened. The servants, the lowliest attendees at the wedding, knew that Jesus brings fullness. And they did whatever he told them. And I can pray that prayer for us with confidence that we will indeed look to Jesus for fullness in our lives. Because you see, he's given us a down payment on that great wedding feast to come, an engagement ring, so to speak. 
The book of Ephesians, uh, Paul call, in the book of Ephesians, Paul calls the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing what is to come. And he even compares the empowering work of the Spirit to the influence of wine. While wine itself is a good gift, Paul says to the Ephesian church, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. While we wait for the fullness of the wedding feast, Jesus is already with us today, binding us together by his Spirit, empowering us to look to him for fullness. The Spirit is a foretaste of what's to come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the creator of all things. Everything good that we have comes from you. You are the only redeemer and savior of the world, the only one who is able to restore us to the fullness of life with you, the life that we were created to live. You take away our guilt and shame. You have overcome death itself. Help us, Jesus, by your spirit to look to you alone for fullness of life. Amen.